To celebrate Black History, The Post and Courier is presenting a series of podcasts and video interviews featuring 12 dynamic South Carolina leaders to know. We talk to people from all over the state about their efforts to advance social justice, celebrate black culture, address community needs, and create a better world. Our podcasts and videos will be released monthly through January 2022. To learn about South Carolina's pantheon of social justice warriors, go to postandcourier.com slash blackhistory. Join us in learning about our state's remarkable change agents. Every walk of life, we're proud of who we are and what we believe. We are among the 200,000 people who work for Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Today, we meet the Reverend Kylon Middleton, pastor of Mount Zion AME Church and a new Charleston County Council member. The Reverend Kylon Middleton, welcome. Thank Hi. You. Hi. Uh, nice day. This is a very unusual day given this week. You know, it's, it's, it's cold now. It's a beautiful day to be in Hampton Park. Certainly. Yeah, it's a lovely day. Uh, yeah, and an interesting week. This has been quite a week. I'm not sure when uh, our viewers will be watching this video, uh, but uh, yes, this is the sort of the end of the Trump term with all the ruckus and... Uh, excitement that comes with it talk about drama yeah so um i'm very curious about your career trajectory and i want to talk through the whole thing yes in a way um one thing that's been pretty consistent i guess is uh, your work in the church yes but you've been doing other things when you were younger you were an educator mm -hmm. and now very recently you were elected to Charleston County Council. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. So you've kind of always done two things. Always done. At two any things. given moment. Yes. Well, t tell me a little bit about well, you know what? Let's even go back further and tell me about your youth and uh, what shaped you and well, turned you into a man of service. This is a perfect place because I played in Hampton Park. My grandmother lives a, a stone's throw away from here. I grew up um, in the central part of the city, well, and the east side predominantly. And uh, But my grandmother, who is the pretty uh, much the stable rock of our family, mm -hmm. uh, lives or lived she's deceased now on poplar street right beyond right here uh this park and i would from burke high school where i graduated i uh, would come through this park to go to my grandmother's house after school from from time to time yeah. and so um just it's nostalgic just being here in hampton park right. uh, I, I i grew up in charleston uh, this city you know is so um it has such deep meaning for me uh, in the sense that um I grew up during a time that it was obvious, you know, that um, there was a clear demarcation and a line uh, drawn racially uh, mm -hmm. in this city. Uh, and that's, that shaped, you know, uh, who uh, I think I am today. I think, you know, I came up you during- can't a, help but shape. Well, I came up during a time that I had to, I, I was very aware uh, that um, segregation was real and that in order to truly access the American dream, I had to really work harder and fight uh, 
more vigorously as it relates to um, pursuing education, uh, becoming um, more uh, aware, you know, that education was the pathway yeah. uh, to a better life and to success. But also aware that there was this extra burden on you. There was that extra burden because, you know, again, I graduated from Burke High School. It was a predominantly black high school, you know, predominantly black high school what during year was that, that time. This was 1992 mm -hmm. uh, that I graduated from Burke High School. And, um, at that time, you know, there were multiple high schools in the city. So, I mean, the peninsula uh, was the majority of those who lived here were black. Uh, it was a different sort of community. Uh, we all knew each other regardless, even with the, the turf territorial area uh, kind of um, uh, identifications. And so it still became uh, a, a robust place to be formed in your identity, uh, particularly as a young uh, black man. The community embraced, especially those of us who um, who seemed to want to um, get more out of life, you know, than joining gangs or being involved in um, in you know just. There was a support system. There here. was a support system there, yeah. and there was an expectation and a demand right. that um, community wide, community wide, that you family. were going to be somebody. In fact. Uh, there were individuals who went to your church. They um, participated in certain other civic organizations and or groups in which your parents and or family members may, may belong. So there was the village <laughs> yeah, <laughs> raising right. the children, right? And so uh, in Charleston, I, I found myself uh, very involved, you know, as a young person, the YWCA, you know, Christine Jackson and, and that um, group that really taught me public speaking to a certain degree along with the church uh, because I would go to um, the YWCA, they had after school programs and they would engage us in reading and, uh, and, and empowerment. So I participated uh, at um, those programs at the YWCA, which then gave me the opportunity to grow and develop into a public spe uh, speaker. Um, Christine Jackson demanded, you know, so much, uh, even as a young man going to, you would think that it would, it would be cultivating girls, and, and definitely they had an agenda of eliminating racism. I remember times where uh, Coretta Scott King would come, and yeah. so, uh, you know, Martin Luther King is Which was like, her cousin. Which was her cousin, and Coretta Scott who King, was who was her cousin, and, and, you know, Martin King is my, you know, I mean, that's like, my person, right? And so for Coretta, coming down to the YWCA during those years, uh, interacting with you know, the youth of Charleston, uh, that shaped my life, that enabled me to connect with her husband in a way that was more than a picture on the wall, right? right. Uh, but with the work and with, um, with, with, with his legacy. And I found myself, um, uh, e even during those years, uh, intertwined in justice and seeking um, at least to bring equity uh, to situations on the playground, uh, on the on the on the street playing ball, or whatever the case was. Not not only the YWCA, but also the YMCA on on Cannon, Cannon Street, Street because I lived on Jasper and uh, Radcliffe Streets, and so we were on the back end really of the YMCA, and so we would go you know to the YMCA because that was like the gym you mm -hmm. know during the right. time boxing and other sorts of uh, sporting type things would you know you would literally you know learn uh, how to um, how to be a man almost well, it sounds know. like it, it was a, a very robust and cohesive community with all kinds of pillars uh, you know firmly planted with throughout the community and so on 
and things have changed, we can talk well, about Well, there that. were those pillars planted within the community, and there was also the element out there that if you got yourself, you know, sort of mixed up in that, you could have gone the other way. Mm. And so I, I, I make the distinction that the community certainly um, saw something in me, <laughs> you know, because I mean, they would not allow me, although I had family members who statistically fell into some of the same, you know, sort of trouble, as we call it, not good trouble, as John right. uh, Lewis calls it, but s some trouble uh, that young, you know, black youth during the time. And when I was growing up, the young black man was an endangered species, mm -hmm. really, uh, during those during those years. And so they recognized something in me, I guess, that they were protecting, they were nurturing, and they were uh, incubating for uh, who I am uh, even today. So that would account, I guess, for your very strong sense of community and yes. your dedication to this community and communi the uh, concept of community. Yeah. Yeah, in general, I feel a responsibility because, you know, the community made me who I am. So I seek community and being a pastor, you know, of course, you know, the, the church, you know, is formed and shaped in community. So I guess it became a natural pathway, you know, for me, a, a, a worthy uh, vocation in which to pursue and a calling, really. And, and so I feel strongly about you know, sort of community development, uh, empowering, bringing people together, building bridges, particularly going through Hurricane Hugo here in Charleston. Mm -hmm. I saw the community for the first time, at least in, in my lifetime that I could remember, because it was such a polarizing uh, place. Either you, you know, were a have or a have not. And even, you know, if you were in the black community, uh, there was still different, Haves you know, have -nots yeah, there, there was too, still different yeah. variations of that too. And so trying to cross Calhoun Street, right? going in the south direction there was I used to deliver newspapers for the for the evening post back then right uh, before the merger uh, there was a news and courier and then the, the evening, uh, post, evening right? post yeah 1991 and, and so I used to deliver uh, the newspaper for the evening post and I would go uh, my route was uh, Trad Street Orange Street Broad Street I mean my route was the battery in those areas and uh, I would get my papers I would go roll them up on on Colonial Lake and I I would walk and deliver the actual papers and I saw a total different life and I determined for myself just through that experience uh, especially having to go back home you know into the community that there should not be such a divide right. you know there was not really anything different that separated us except the fact that you know there was that Cal Calhoun Street sort of um, <laughs> symbolic divide. Symbolic divide. Not so symbolic, the concrete divide, right. I suppose. But also the historic divide right. and the cultural divide and everything was seemed so divided then and yes. still is a little bit too much. Still a little bit, still but we're making some progress. Yeah. Well, you've been working on that. Yeah. You've been working on that very directly. Very in directly. In some ways, yeah. Intentionally. Um, there's the Illuminations Project that you've been working on and, and other kinds of community building projects. Yeah, I think that the only way that you can really transform uh, communities is by truly uh, getting involved. I mean, when we bring people together and you can begin to uh, cause individuals to just talk, just like we're doing right now, you will find that you have more in common than of you course. have that things that are different. And so uh, through the Illumination Project, that was a hard sell, right? Because, you know, especially being, you know, from the east side as well, um, 
during a time growing up in Charleston where, you know, it was like a war zone. I mean, crime was rampant, um, you know, the sort of uh, unsavory activities were the norm, you know, during that time. And uh, pol there was a, you know, policing tactic, especially under Reuben Greenberg, mm -hmm. uh, that targeted, you know, <laughs> those type, uh, that type element yeah. in those neighborhoods. And, and, and it was profiling and it was, you know, pretext and it was targeted and it was specific uh, to specific neighborhoods. So, so I came up during those years that I was afraid of the police. I, I was not necessarily looking to work directly with police uh, and building relationships, but I recognized through the illumination project on the back end of the tragedy uh, that occurred at Mother Emanuel, you know, I was being called in a different way uh, to really bring the community together along with others uh, and heal some of those divides. So when Chief Mullen approached me, I found it to be, well, first of all, you know, incredible, you know, to believe that, you know, we could potentially even bring these vulnerable, vulnerable communities toward the police, but especially in a time uh, where there were so many real examples, you know, in even in that year, Walter Scott had just happened right. uh, earlier in that year right. that that would prove, you know, to be almost, uh, you know, a recipe for, you know, those type divides to remain in the Gulf uh, to widen, but um, but the Illumination Project provided an opportunity uh, to have those open conversations, those honest dialogues, mm -hmm. recognizing that public safety is all of our responsibility, not yeah. just the police, and realizing that police were people. And for the first time, and it was not until the tragedy where um, Chief Mullen, you know, I lost a loved, you know, loved one, someone very close Good. to me in that tragedy as well. And it was when we were held up in the embassy suites, it was the police officers, the chief and others that came over and they attended to us and they cared for us. And, they, and I, I, I was shown a total different, um, you know, characteristic, you know, and or um, role of police officers as caring individuals in that time. It sort of goes to show you the potential there is, I think, especially in Charleston uh, with these three agencies. I'm thinking the Sheriff's Office, North yes. Charleston Police and the Charleston Police. All three are relatively progressive uh, compared to other police departments in other places. And the sheriff's office now has a new leader who's extremely progressive yes. and determined to reach out to the to people of color and to diversify her her agency and so on. And um, it seems to me that Charleston law enforcement agencies face a, a potentially a very unique opportunity to kind of set a tone and lead the way in productive reform? I think that now is the time. I, I, I really believe that um, we have the leaders in place, uh, the chief uh, in uh, Chief Reynolds in Charleston, Chief Burgess in North Charleston, Sheriff Graziano uh, in the county, uh, who are forward thinking and who are open uh, to diversity, yeah. inclusion, equity. Uh, they are aware that the old practices cannot be, you know, the order of the day moving forward. They know uh, that um, there, there are systemic uh, injustices and inequities that create uh, systems that continue to create generational 
uh, sort of relationships that may be fraught, you know, with, um, you know, repeated criminal activity based on just uh, people's experiences, their relationship, especially with law enforcement. They recognize that the criminal justice system becomes a pipeline, mm -hmm. you know, if individuals are, are, are not educated. Do you think they also recognize that, you know, they can't do it alone? They can't do it alone. And this is where I really learned through the Illumination Project uh, that the police get it a little bit more than what we think. Yeah. Because they recognize that, you know, as it relates to their profession, it is a hard sell in a lot of cases uh, for them to initiate community driven initiatives, particularly when their job is to serve and their job is to serve and protect. Okay. But sometimes we heavily only recognize that they are in a protective role and we only see them uh, when they're in uniforms, guns, etc. Right. But when they are serving us and creating opportunities where we can begin to partner through initiatives, through uh, those uh, preventative programs that, that really um, you know, make our communities stronger and better, it is a far better yeah. way of policing. Community-oriented policing is the way. Well, that is Reggie Burgess's emphasis. Well, it, and we have seen that, and, and certainly it is the emphasis here in the city of in, Charleston. In the Charleston whole, too, uh, yeah. An entire uh, department was created uh, in, in uh, the police department, community-oriented policing, right. modeling after the uh, Obama model that was uh, created during um, the Obama administration. So there is an opportunity and I, I it would be nice to see more collaboration though between agencies too so you have you know the police are tasked i think i think we treat the police unfairly in a way you know i think that we're expecting the police to solve all these problems crime or whatever when there are so many contributing factors that are beyond their control right. They can't deal with mental health no, issues. They, cannot. they don't have the resources they, for and they should not be dealing with homeless. Those issues. There's no homeless shelter in all of North Charleston. Right. Right. So there are Where can they take these people? Jail, and that's historically, you know, the only other option that they have and and there's really no reason to arrest them and a lot of these uh, individuals uh, do have se severe mental health um, issues and or, you know, other factors that really uh, should not even require police involvement. Police intervention. And right. so I really think that uh, they know that and they get that. And as we're looking at other uh, ways in which to truly transform social services and wraparound services and uh, these other uh, agency opportunities to positively impact our communities, we have to look at funding funding mechanisms. And I think uh, the new sheriff has automatically said that, you know, uh, upon her uh, being sworn in, that there were certain things related to the old structure of the sheriff's office and the way in which uh, she just ended an agreement with ICE, you know, for right. crying out loud. So I, so that's bold and, and that's decisive because uh, what a shift that is yeah. in, in, in even a community of individuals who may still be undocumented and maybe in this country illegally, but now they don't have to be afraid uh, when they are going through uh, you know, domestic violence situations and or uh, issues that they really do need police intervention that they are too afraid to even call the cops right. because they can't um, risk. You well, know. and the police depend on communities. I mean, it, it's a two-way street. They, two -way they street. depend on the trust of the community right. to gather information, information they need in, in order to keep these communities Absolutely. safe and not just 
every community but i now think yeah. you know with the new social services hub and and you know again in my new career on as a politician and now being on, on county council there are other opportunities that we can begin to uh, build other supports uh, within our communities that strengthen and support um, citizens in ways uh, that they are receiving uh, those services that enable them to be whole mind body and soul mm -hmm. So, okay, so for example, so now you're on uh, county council, what will, if, if you had your way, what would be the first thing you'd do, you'd get done? Well, I'm, I'm all over affordable housing right now. I know okay. we were just talking about uh, policing and criminal justice issues. But it's all interrelated you know, it's after all. All. Inter all of it is interrelated. <laughs> when you look at the nature of the region, so it's not just Charleston. You mentioned North Charleston and, and then even beyond North Charleston, just Charleston, Berkeley and Dorchester counties and beyond. But certainly those three, um, this entire region, we are finding that we're in a housing crisis. And when you have individuals like police officers, news uh, uh, newsmakers and or um, people who are just pastors, pastors like average everyday citizens uh, who would like to work and thrive in communities. You can't even afford to live right. where you work. And so we have to find ways to uh, to make housing. And I know affordable may not may be the word <laughs> that, you know, creates uh, consternation for some folks. Some folks may want it to be workforce well, it's housing. It's hard to define what that is. It's hard, even. but we yeah. have to define it uh, so that we can then begin to find out what that number is to make certain that it is at a plate at a point where people can can live, um, you know, as comfortably and as um, with dignity with, with dignity as anyone else and thrive in those communities and, and be able to take advantage of beautiful parks just like this one and other um, amenities in their communities that yeah. you know keep them that help helps them to know that they're safe and 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 that they're in a place where they can really be their best so we we need more affordable housing or whatever we want to call it, yeah. but how do we actually get there? Like so we, you know, through county council, you know, there was that two-part you know, question that was put up for referendum that, that narrowly failed, failed narrowly failed. Narrowly failed. Yeah. So there is an appetite uh, among citizens, not necessarily based on raising taxes. I am opposed to raising taxes. So, I mean, that that, that is one thing. Unless it's for the right reason at well, the right time in the right way. Uh, Okay, you're just opposed. Yeah, I'm opposed to raising taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm opposed to raising taxes. And I really feel that in that particular um, situation, that council did not have to put it on uh, a referendum, a bond, you know, a bond referendum. They could have made the decision, really, uh, to embed affordability as a metric in their formula for the county and find ways in order through the county's nearly half billion dollar budget some money in around. order to fund it. And so there are ways to do it. And so creatively, we're working on that. Okay. So when you ask, well, what are we doing immediately? That's one of the things we're revising and refreshing uh, that housing subcommittee and we're beginning uh, to work with other uh, uh, other stakeholders and groups within our community that are interested uh, in uh, in that metric so that we can kind of roll that out and make that happen the city of Charleston I'm on the city of Charleston's uh, housing commission uh, and the city already has done that and yeah. done that well so there's a model uh, locally and but uh, the city you know has already shown through its own will that it can create affordability in um, it's metric for development and for, you know, uh, 
for housing. Though perhaps there's not quite enough of that. Not enough of it. You know, again, we're in a supply demand, you know, sort of uh, situation, but at the same token, they have been intentional. Yeah. So that's the point that I'm making. And they're aware that there's no way that we can continue, you know, doing what we're doing and expect our city to still, you know, survive. Um, no. We just right. can't keep it. As a it. dynamic, diverse, no. you know, in, in right. place of where right. people are indigenous to the, no. you know, to the place. Yeah. We, we can't continue and expect uh, this to be a place where people call home. So how do you view the, the work of county council in relation to the, the, the other government, local government organizations, the various city councils and town councils and agencies and so on and so forth. It is so exciting because, I mean, it becomes our prerogative to help and to, you know, support and to create, you know, those synergistic opportunities uh, to create the dynamics uh, throughout the entire county because, you know, again, equitably, so it becomes the county's, uh, you know, opportunity to really, you know, bring these municipalities together so that we can have a thriving, robust region or uh, a thriving, robust county. Yeah. Uh, and so that's across the board. So I think that uh, from, you know, waste management and re the things that are not as sexy, you know, things that we really shouldn't. Services be, nonetheless. Services nonetheless. Uh, you know, um, fire and uh, public safety and, and those type things. You want... I'm not a big government guy, but at the same token, you want government <laughs> to be involved in some... Upon which civilization is built. Exactly without right. Without that, without some way to organize it and, and, and take care of the needs of community, how do you Because we have thrive? all of these successionists, you know, these days folks want to, you know, pull parts of the city out, West Ashley out of, <laughs> right, you know, right. and, so, and so, you know, again, the county has that opportunity to, to really... Um, project, plan, and coordinate, mm -hmm. especially the growth yeah. uh, of, of our municipalities. Which, of course, is a huge issue area. we're all contending with yeah. now, Yeah, this amazing growth. All right, well, so um, finally, let's talk a little bit about the church. Yes. And your role in the church and how you see uh, the church's role. I mean, you've been active in the AME Church for a long time, and the AME Church has a, a wonderful history of um, social activism and community engagement. It's far more than just a sanctuary of God. Now, a word from our sponsors. Middleton Place National Historic Landmark is home to America's oldest and most important landscaped gardens. The historic site encompasses 110 acres, including the gardens, house museum, stable yards, and Eliza's house. Together, they tell the inclusive history of all who lived and worked here. Through exhibits, tours, and daily programs, visitors can learn about the Middleton family, including two founding fathers and the important stories of the enslaved women and men and their vast contributions from engineering and landscaping to building and sustaining Middleton Place through the centuries. Information about special programming for Black History Month can be found at middletonplace.org. Middleton Place is open daily from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Well, uh, the, the change of scenery is because it's raining and uh, we were getting wet and now we're not getting wet anymore because we're under this lovely gazebo in Hampton Park uh, and we're talking about the church and your yes. involvement in the church and the AME church and the church's long and storied um, 
dedication to uh, civil service, civic service, civic engagement, community engagement, and so on. And I'm, I'm curious to know how the matrix all fits together here. The Amy Church is a vehicle of social justice. It was born out of um, just uh, protest of racial uh, discrimination at St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And Richard Allen, who is our founder, and several others walked out at the time of prayer where they were being uh, asked to get up off their knees so that white parishioners could come and pray. And you know, they were in the gallery, it was their time to pray. They were brought down and he said, give us uh, just this hour, you know, or this moment just to conclude our prayer. And when he got up, he walked out of that church and formulated uh, what is known as the Free African Society, the predecessor of the AME Church mm -hmm. in a blacksmith shop, uh, the anvil. Uh, and the cross <laughs> becomes a part of our enduring legacy and story. Uh, we were we were born out of out of um, uh, trial by fire, and so he came out and uh, trusted God and created and established a church that has a prophetic voice that continues to speak to our community today. Okay. We become the mirror, especially when you look at uh, the issues that we were talking about earlier, those, uh, those ills in our society, those injustices, those, um, the, you know, the bigotry that, that we see so overtly, especially today, uh, the, the hatred, uh, especially experienced uh, through an individual going in uh, a, a black church, a historically black church, an AME church, the pillar, the pinnacle of uh, African Methodism in the South, Mother Emanuel, and literally murdering, you know, my dear friend and brother, the pastor, and the members during a time where they were literally praying, invited right. him, him in and taught him the word of in God. In community. Right. In community. Right. We are a reconciling people. So we, we don't really exclude, we include, we bring folk in. And so uh, when you look at the inner working and the tapestry of the AME Church, it is a very complex organism. Uh, it is extremely hierarchical. We, mm -hmm. we are organized by bishops and uh, in, we are assigned as pastors to individual churches. Of course, I've been pastoring uh, in the AME Church nearly 30 years, and, and it has not been an easy journey. No. Uh, because again, when I came in, I, I started preaching, I was eight years old, so I was dealing with age discrimination uh, in the church at, at one point, because of course I was a, I was a boy, right? And so I'm uh, you know, competing against men and older men, and so it's a, it, it's a very conservative organization. Yes, <laughs> and right. so certainly uh, it, it took women a long time you know, to be uh, recognized as preachers and then being Accepted. Uh, uh, accepted and assigned as mm -hmm. pastors of churches and then major uh, AME churches like Mount Zion or others uh, who are um, flagship churches uh, that are anchored in cities uh, as opposed to rural small and churches. And there still aren't in, very in, many women in the pulpits. There are not very many and until recently being elevated to the office of bishop, you yeah, know, with Pastor right. McKenzie being the first. So uh, the AME Church is, is, a, is a mysterious uh, sort of organization, but at the same time very powerful, uh, rooted in social justice, uh, breathes uh, for the purpose of making certain that the drumbeat of justice continues to beat perpetually uh, so that individuals, you know, our, our people who really uh, uh, looking at uh, the plight of African Americans are, are, 
are lifted and, and valued and the human dignity and human spirit uh, is celebrated and revered and uh, so that uh, opportunity uh, is afforded to all of us. So uh, when I look at the nature uh, and the um, relevance of the AME Church in Charleston, uh, particularly, particularly a church like Mount Zion. Mount Zion and Mother Emanuel were one church. And in 1882, the pastor of Mother Emanuel, Norman Sterrett, walked away from Mother Emanuel with hundreds of members. It was a, a wooden structure at the time and formed Mount Zion, which is the first brick church. It used to be a Presbyterian church owned by blacks in the city. Mount Zion has had uh, a proud legacy a proud legacy of social justice and activism, a proud legacy where Frederick Douglass uh, himself, the Massachusetts 54th Regiment, uh, worshiped uh, you know, at uh, that church. And so it's had a proud legacy of, of propelling the issues uh, of the day, uh, meaning of, 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 of the advancement of black people or colored people uh, during that time uh, so that we could overcome. Uh, those um, those systemic um, hindrances and barricades and roadblocks that continued uh, to impede our progress. So uh, the church becomes a symbol, not just uh, of r religious worship, but it was a place of organization, uh, meaning of civic activity and uh, organizing for- It was a uh, safe place to it gather? Was a, it was a safe when place. When other places weren't always so safe? Where doors were not opened, you know, you couldn't go to the Gilliard Auditorium right. to do it. And so they came to the church. And so the church was uh, that empowering um, sanctuary where individuals can uh, could learn and could receive uh, direction to go back into society. And become fully realized as human beings without the burdens right. of the, the white society right. imposing their restrictions and all that, Yeah, I suppose. I once heard it described uh, that uh, in the black community there are these essential pillars, family, yes. school, uh, church, uh, those three in particular. I think I'm forgetting a fourth, maybe not. Uh, and, and that these pillars really hold up the superstructure of the community, and as such, they're interdependent on one another. You can't separate them, you can't distinct. So naturally, there will be discussions of politics in the church, and naturally, there will be discussions of religion in the school, yes. and naturally, there will be, you know, it's, that's the way the, 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 the dynamic of the community functions and, well, that's and how the, the energy is transmitted between these institutions. That's the way the dynamic of the community had to function because remember, you know, schools were not always open, you know, to black people. And so churches then formed one-room schools and in, some individual would then uh, teach uh, children, you know, in those churches um, how to read, how to write, how to, um, you know, yeah. just how to uh, advance in society. And yeah, those were the pillars. Your family first, because the, the family rooted in faith, you know, and so, you know, the faith was inextricably uh, intertwined. Everybody went to church. And that's why when looking at uh, churches, you know, historic black churches, especially AME churches on the peninsula, they all had large memberships, <laughs> you know, yeah. especially, you know, uh, because the city was populated uh, mostly, uh, well, predominantly by blacks during the time. And these churches were overflowing <laughs> with members, all of them, 
And so, and invariably, the pastor was also engaged in other civic duties. The they sat on the school board. They were in, Richard you know, Harvey Kane was a senator. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, the pastor was expected uh, to do other things because the pastor was not only the leader of the church, uh, the pastor was expected to be a leader in that community. Right. And so now you're following in that tradition. I have to. <laughs> it's a part of my heritage. That's right. Yeah. And That's so, right. you know, when looking at being the pastor of a church like Mount Zion, you cannot just be enclosed. You have to be, you know, one who, um, you know, provides not only the, the, the whole uh, city is the parish, right? It, it, it's, it's just not the church. And so you have to provide services uh, throughout the community that begins to uh, at least shine a light uh, on those issues and, and on those um, things that matter most so that the the needs of the parishioners are also met collaterally because, you know, again, if we have those relationships and those connections, um, those doors to, you know, become open. It's so, inter you talk about things being intertwined, you know, individuals who work places and when they find out that you go to, it's almost like a resume builder. Yeah. Oh, you go to this church and then the door opens. Yeah. But, um, but definitely it, it, it's, in, it, it is an expectation uh, to be uh, involved so that, um, so that those relationships, you know, can create at least uh, the opportunities. Flourish and thrive. That's the way to do it. Well, congratulations on your election to County Council, Charleston yes. County Council. Uh, may your career there be productive and fruitful. And may, uh, may you find lots of accord and fraternity as you pursue your goals. And, uh, and congratulations also on your leadership of Mount Zion, uh, the Illumination Project, all of you, the work you've done in the city, your help with Emmanuel in the aftermath of the sh terrible shooting. Um, we're grateful for your leadership here in Charleston. Great to talk with you. Kylon Middleton, thank you. Thank you very much. In today's society where essentially everybody with a Twitter handle can be a so-called journalists. It's very hard to distinguish what is true and what is not. The Post and Courage has a very credible reputation of reporting news that is accurate. The whole um, idea of being a journalist is you're reporting it as a human being, but also to the best of your ability from an unbiased perspective. We, as journalists, we spend time um, you know, researching information. We spend time talking with credible sources to compile um, a story that is honest, that is accurate. We're providing information that you use to make important decisions. It's very well worth your while to, to pay you know, something for it. Twelve Black Leaders to Know is a special series of The Post and Career, produced by Chris Zeller, with interviews conducted by Adam Parker, and video production by Matthew Crum. Thank you to our sponsors, Bank of America, College of Charleston Master of Business Administration, South Carolina Governor's School for the Arts and Humanities, Claflin University, Nephron Pharmaceuticals, South Carolina Whitmore School, Ingevity, South Carolina Buy Black Locally, Trident Technical College, and Middleton Place. To learn about South Carolina's pantheon of social justice warriors, visit postandcourier.com slash blackhistory.